Let us ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading of his holy word. O Lord God, you are indeed a great and a holy God. You dwell in unapproachable light. Your foolishness is so exalted as to be higher than our greatest wisdom. And yet you have condescended to reveal yourself in your works of creation and providence, in the words of your scripture, and supremely in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was indeed God made manifest in the flesh. We pray now, O God, as we come to the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would guide me as I preach, and you would open hearts and minds to receive the great truths of your gospel. For we pray these things in dependence upon your grace. Amen. Please be seated. If you would turn with me to to the book of Judges, and I will read read chapter 1. I think I'll read from verse uh, 1 to 15, and then from verse 27 to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him, and Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And now from verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. 
And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. So the Canaanites lived in Giza among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Arlab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ijalon, and in Shalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Ammonites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upwards. Thus far in God's holy and inerrant word. Book of Judges is one of the, uh, perhaps one of the most interesting, but also perhaps one of the least preached on books in the Bible. I think it's an interesting book because it contains some of the most spectacular and fantastic stories that one can find. Also some very earthy stories. When my own two boys were younger at family worship time, would occasionally say to them, uh, what would you like us to read? You know, you can choose a chapter of the Bible. And it was always the same chapter. It was always Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, of course, is the story of Ehud and how he slays this extremely fat and oppressive king. And there's this great description of how the sword goes in and the fat closes around the handle of the sword. And it's just a great story for seven and eight-year-old boys to listen to. And then, of course, his servants think that the delay in the, uh, the king coming out of the chamber is because he's in the toilet. So you have everything that revolting little boys look for in a story. Violence and lavatories. But yet, the book of Judges is often neglected, I think, in the Christian church, because, of course, it contains some of the hardest passages to comprehend as Christians. Not only are many of the heroes in the book of Judges who are commended in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, not only are many of those heroes wild men who don't really seem to be behaving as men of God should behave, but you also have this awesome and terrifying story of ethnic violence. When the children of Israel enter the promised land, they have an instruction from the Lord, and the instruction is simply to destroy everything before them. The people in the land are to be slaughtered, men, women, and children. And of course, that is a very, very hard teaching. We shall come to it a little bit later on. And much of the, of the sort of the, the difficulties... Many of the difficulties in the book of Judges are there in the very first chapter that I read. The very first chapter sets the tone of the whole book. Here we see the start of the Canaanites carrying out their commission from God against the people of the land. But we also see the first signs of what will become a continuing theme throughout the book. 
The book is often described as, well, it's a story of people who keep declining and coming back up and declining and coming back up in terms of their loyalty to God. I think that is a wrong description of the book. I think the book is a fairly unmitigated description of the slow and steady apostasy of the people of Israel. It begins with a failure to carry out the Lord's commission to the letter, and it ends with the brutal rape and murder of a young girl in terms that are, if they're reminiscent of anything, are reminiscent of the events that take place in Sodom immediately prior to its destruction in the book of Genesis. The book, if you like, begins full of hope and promise, the people entering the land, and it ends with this terrible verdict that Sodom is no longer something out there. It's no longer something you know, out there over against the people of God. Sodom is something that has taken root within the very people of God themselves. So that is the sort of the overview of the book. And I want to look this morning particularly at chapter 1. And I think there are four things that I want to, to raise about chapter 1. I'm going to talk about the terrifying holiness of God. I want to talk about the terrifying demands of that holiness. I want to look at the compromised response of the people of Israel. And I want to look at one example in chapter 1 of an uncompromised response to the holiness of God. First then, the holiness of God. If we're going to make any sense whatsoever of the terrible narratives that occur in the book of Judges, then we need to understand that the book rests against the background of a picture of God as awesome and terrifyingly holy. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19 and you read there about the giving of the law when God comes and meets with Moses on the mountain and gives the law to the people, that is not a wonderful and happy experience for the people of Israel. If you read the description in Exodus 19, you will see that the mountain shakes violently. There's thunder and lightning, and the people are terrified. As God reveals himself to Moses in all his awesomeness, the people are terrified. They think they're about to be swept away and destroyed because they become acutely aware that people like them, who have fallen and failed consistently, cannot stand before the living God and survive. And if you go elsewhere in the, in the law, go to Leviticus 19, and you have in Leviticus 19 a series of moral commands given out. And at the end of each moral command, the Lord says, I am the Lord. The covenant name occurs. The moral demands that the Lord places on his people, they're not there because of some whim. He's just decided this is how he wants to act. They're deeply rooted in his character as who he is as God. And of course, this plays out, if you look uh, throughout Scripture, it plays out in God's demands for exclusivity. God tolerates no rivals. Human beings are made in the image of God. They are made to image God. They are made to live as worshippers of God. To worship something other than God then is to be, one, less than human, two, it's to defile the image, and three, it's to dishonor this terrible and awesome God. 
The story of the Old Testament is the story of a God who will tolerate no rivals, unless we think, of course, that, well, that all changes in the New Testament. Jesus comes and God ceases to be so angry. And maybe he lowers the bar a bit and becomes this much more conducive and friendly, kind of modern, western, democratic sort of God. Think of the language that's used in the New Testament to describe God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at what the writer to Hebrews, the words that he uses about God. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse uh, 29. How much worse punishment, you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged his grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is described, even in the New Testament, as a consuming fire. And you will always have difficulties understanding the book of Judges unless you understand, first of all, that God is a consuming fire and He is awesome and He is holy. And I want to just raise the question, perhaps, at this point. When was the last time you were terrified of God? When was the last time that you thought of God as a consuming fire? When was the last time that it struck you as a terrible and awesome thing to fall into the hands of God? To what extent do you have any grasp at all of the holiness of God? Put it in a really blunt way. When was the last time that you were terrified not to be in church on a Sunday? To what extent does the holiness of God shape your thinking about it? To what extent does your failure to understand the holiness of God account for half-heartedness and compromise in our lives? So the first thing then to grasp is that God is holy and this is the context into which we need to set this awesome ethnic cleansing of the land. God gives this instruction way back. Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 to 14. The Lord says, when you go into this land, I want you to carry all before you. Sweep away the inhabitants of the land. It's instinctively problematic to us. After a century, a century that has been marked by, if nothing else, horrible ethnic cleansings. The Armenian Massacre, 1915. The rape of Nanking in the 1930s. The Holocaust. You don't even have to go back that far. We can go back to the 1990s and think of awesome ethnic cleansings that take place even in Europe. In developed industrial nations at the end of the 20th century, ethnic cleansings took place. Africa. It's not something that strikes us as a particularly good or appropriate thing to do. But you must remember, God's ways are not human ways. And secondly, of course, it is not as if the people of Israel are sweeping into a land and getting rid of innocent people. The description of the Canaanites is one that focuses on sexual sleaze and child murder. 
Leviticus 18, 6-30. Look it up later on. The Israelites are warned not to indulge in sexual immorality and in the sacrifice of children because that is the behavior that marks the land they are going to. The cultures into which they come as they enter the promised land are cultures where the murder of children is a casual thing. So the people against whom the Israelites come as the agents of God's judgments, if you like, at this point, the first thing to know is, well, God is holy and these people are anything but. They worship other gods and they slay their own children. Secondly, the reason for God's uh, command to engage in this terrible ethnic cleansing is that God knows that if the Canaanites are left in the land, it will cause his own people to fall away. And we shall see there's even evidence of that in the first very few, ver- first very few verses of the book of Judges. The people's holiness, the people of Israel's holiness depends depends upon the purity of their environment, if you like. If the Canaanites remain in place, guess what? Sooner or later, the values of Canaan will take hold within the people of God. If the Canaanites remain in place, sooner or later, a young girl will be raped and murdered, and civil war will break out. Sodom itself will take root within the people of Israel. That, too, is at the back of God's command. So I want you to notice here the strong cultural antithesis that takes place. As the people of Israel move into the land, they are to be ruthless, ruthless in dealing with that around them which might lead them astray. Ask yourself the question today, how ruthless am I? We live as sojourners, as pilgrims in a hostile and alien culture. How ruthless are we in dealing with that culture? I'm not saying go out and buy yourself a machine gun and go and massacre people. That's not how Christians should act. But is your attitude to the wider culture a question of, do you phrase it in terms of, well, how close can I get without being contaminated? Can I go to this place and not be contaminated? Can I watch this movie and not be contaminated? Can I hang around with this company and not be contaminated? Or is your first motivation, the Lord God is holy in a consuming fire and he has called me as one of his people to be holy and that must shape everything I do. That must be my top priority in everything I do and say and everywhere I go. It strikes me as irony, quite ironic, that people get very, very, you know, prissy and superior about the violence in the book of Judges when so many of us spend our entertainment times watching movies containing graphic violence. Violence in Judges has a holy purpose. For us, it's just a form of entertainment. I think there's a question there as to whether we can stand in moral judgment on the book of Judges when violence has become for us just another means of occupying a bit of spare time and having a bit of fun. So that is the background then. The Lord is holy, and as the people move into the land, the Lord has given them this awesome and terrible instruction because He is a holy God, and these people have blasphemed against His name, 
and they will lead the people of Israel into more terrible places if they remain in place. And the book of Judges then starts quite well. First thing we hear is after the death of Joshua, Joshua, the great leader, has died, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. That's a good move on their part. The first thing they do is they look to the Lord for guidance. They understand that in the matter of inheriting the promise, they have to first of all look to God for his advice. They have to seek the word of the Lord in order to know how they are to act in this situation. It's a great uh, pattern to follow, if you like. I mentioned in my prayer earlier on, 1 Corinthians 1.25, God's foolishness is much wiser than our wisdom. The Israelites at this point clearly know that they can't predict God. God is a mysterious and holy God and they need to come before him and ask him to speak before they can respond. So they clearly understand that they need to be self-consciously dependent upon God and his revelation. But then it all starts to go horribly wrong. And the first place I think it goes horribly wrong and we get a, a dark and sinister hint of what is to come is the events surrounding this character Adonai Bezek. Maybe a proper name, Adonai Bezek. More likely, perhaps, it just means Lord of Bezek. He was the, the head honcho in this place called Bezek. The first thing, the first worrying thing about Adonai Bezek is this. They spare him. The instructions are very clear. Go in and put everyone to the sword. But for some reason, the leader of Bezek is spared. And that is a profoundly worrying sign. Secondly, interesting aspect of, of, of the Lord of Bezek, Adoni Bezek, is this. It's the way they punish him. They chop off his fingers and his toes. Imagine that. That's pretty brutal punishment if you chop off your, your thumbs and your toes. If you chop off your toes, you imagine it would be very, very difficult to walk. You know, just think consciously as you walk along, the big toe plays a big role in how human beings walk. So, you cut off a man's toes, you're really crippling him. You cut off his thumbs, you dramatically limit what he can do with his hands. Imagine, you know, my sons, you're horrible. If I thumbs go, I wouldn't be able to text anymore. That's about the worst punishment you can inflict upon a teenager these days. But they cut off his thumbs and his toes. And Adonai Bezik's response is interesting. He says this, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done so, God has repaid me interesting. And perhaps the instinctive response to this is to think, well, this is what you know, we call in the Old Testament the lex talionis. It's the old eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth principle, which was set up so that you know, it was really set up to make sure that justice was fair, to limit the extent of justice. You know, if I walk up to you and I poke out your eye, you can, you know, you're, you can poke out my eye. You can't poke out two eyes, because that would be revenge, not justice. But you could poke out one eye. And knock out one tooth, you can knock out one tooth. You can't knock out three teeth, that would be revenge. So is this an example of, of the lex talionis, that this man has done to people in the past, he's mutilated them by chopping off the thumbs and their toes, and now it's been done to him. And there's, some, you know, there's a sort of hint that that might be the case, because he makes this interesting statement, as I have done, so God has repaid me. 
He said, yeah, I, I took off toe, thumbs and toes. So my thumbs and toes have been taken off. I can't complain about it. Is that what's being said? Has this guy suddenly got an insight into the God of Israel? Well, the text there is actually a bit ambiguous because even though the ESV has God with a capital G, implying that it's the God of Israel he's talking about, in fact, the word that he uses is simply a generic term for God. So we don't know from the text that this man is talking about the God of Israel. Secondly, secondly, remember this man should have been put to the sword. We're just told he died. Maybe he got septicemia or something. Maybe he died of old age many years later. We're not told. He's taken to Jerusalem and he dies. I don't think it's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle here. I think the really interesting thing is that the Israelites punish him just as he punished his enemies. What is the book of Judges a story about? It's a long story about how the people of Israel slowly become indistinguishable from the Canaanites they were meant to clear out but didn't. And I think it starts here in chapter 1. What they should have done was execute this man. What they actually do is they adopt Canaanite practices of dealing with your enemies. Don't follow the word of the Lord. Follow the practices of the world around them. This, I think, is a sign that Canaanite practices, not the word of the Lord, are already shaping their behavior in the book of Judges. We get a sinister hint here of what is to come. What begins with simply mutilating a man rather than executing him, as I said, will end with the moral building of Sodom itself within the people of God. The first flawed response then is Adonai, the punishment of Adonai Bezek. The second flawed response is the second section of the chapter I read. The consistent failure to drive out the nations. Verses 27 to 26. Again, this is a clear contradiction of God's command. He doesn't say, go in and you know, beat these people to a pulp and then come to some arrangement whereby you can cohabit with them in the land. He says, go and drive them out before you. Time and time again in the latter part of Judges, chapter 1, we see being set up the context for the later problems. The Canaanites are being left in place. But note something about this. Note something about this, and that is the results on the surface look more successful. Just imagine, you're a faithful Israelite, and you go into your part of the territory, and you clear out the natives. So it's just you and your family and your friends and your tribe left. Come springtime, you've got to go out and plough the land and sow the harvest. Come autumn time, you can't rest because you're having to get the harvest back in. And you look over the border to the territory of a neighbouring tribe. And the neighbouring tribe, well, all they did was they crushed. They crushed the indigenous population and then put them to forced labour. Those guys are hanging around on their decks, drinking pina coladas, looking at the forced labour, doing all the hard work for them. The outward success, it looks more outwardly successful for those who disobey the word of God at this point. Superficially, they seem to have a more successful 
probably a more relaxed way of life. We know in the long run it's going to be an absolute disaster. But short term, I think what you see here is the triumph of pragmatism. The Israelites know best. They know what success really looks like. And frankly, it doesn't look like putting a perfectly good workforce to death. It looks like putting them in a chain gang, getting them to build roads, plough fields, sow seed. So notice the failure to obey here, which I think is rooted in a basic failure to understand God's holiness, the adequacy of his word, and also a failure to understand the true nature of success. Their views of success have been determined not by the word of God, not by a model of faithfulness, if you like, but by a model of worldly prosperity. The temptation, I think, great temptations for us as Christians, twofold. One is to make Christianity just one component of our lives. An hour and ten minutes on a Sunday morning. It's like a flu shot. Kind of immunizes you for the rest of the week. Get it out of the way on a Sunday morning and you're good to go from Sunday lunchtime to next time Sunday morning. We compartmentalize our Christianity and don't realize that the demands that a holy God makes upon us is not that our Sunday morning should be sanctified to him, but the whole of our lives should be sanctified to him. It's interesting in some, uh, every now and then, if you look at at catechetical some of the, the less well-written sort of modern catechisms will make statements to the effect of, you know, you shouldn't do anything that dishonors God on a Sunday. We well, shouldn't actually do anything that dishonors God Monday to Saturday either because the God is the God of the whole week. The message that comes through again and again in the book of Judges is God is a God who demands total commitment and consecration. And secondly... The other temptation, I think it's particularly a temptation in the West, is to judge fidelity in terms of success, outward success, rather than faithfulness to the Word of God. The Israelites, in the first chapter of the book of Judges, they generally, from a human perspective, look like successes. They've won most of their battles, except for those involving chariots. They win all the battles. And they put the people to forced labor looks like a great deal. It's abject failure. It's abject failure because it contradicts the word of God and the rest of the book of Judges will outline in painful detail how much of an abject failure that is. The book of Judges reads in some ways like a slow-motion car crash. It's painful to read the slow and terrible decline. And there's a lesson there for us today. Do not judge the church's success by numbers. Don't judge the church's success by uh, money. Don't judge the church's success by whether Congress listens to it or not. The church's job is not to take over Congress for Christ. The church's job is to be faithful to the Word of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Judges makes that very, very plain. But there is one beautiful vignette in the Judges chapter 1, and that is the story of Caleb, Aksa, and Othniel. Ironically, of course, Caleb is a sort of adopted Israelite. He's actually a Kenite. 
So he's a sort of adopted into the family of Israel. The only sort of flash of light, if you like, in Judges chapter 1 is somebody who wasn't really Jewish anyway. But Caleb, the story of Caleb, Axa, and Othniel, it's actually lifted from the book of Joshua. If you go to Joshua chapter 15, verses 13 to 19, you find the same story, basically word for word. Again, our modern sensibilities, perhaps a little less than uh, in ter- uh, they do at the uh, ethnic cleansing, but our modern sensibilities tend to recoil a little bit from this because it sounds like Caleb's making his daughter a sort of bargaining chip. Some guy goes out there and does the job, I'm going to give him one of my daughters. We live in a world where you know, marriage is sort of rooted in love, prior to marriage, uh, emotional attractions. Within the, the society of ancient Israel, I'm pretty sure that Axa would have regarded this as a pretty good deal because it guarantees her a husband of real standing and integrity within the community. Her father, if you like, is acting like a good father. He's behaving towards his daughter in a very appropriate way. I think the story is probably included here in Judges, even though it's already in Joshua, as a counterpoint to what happens later on. When the Levite's concubine is raped and murdered, that's how women should not be treated. But the Caleb story here is put in at the beginning so that you can see just how terrible the end is when you get there. Caleb is doing what every good father would do in Israel that day. He's trying to make sure that his daughter gets a good husband. And there's no hint in the text that she objects. As I say, it's a way for her to find a noble and a worthy husband. And the whole thing is rooted in Caleb's desire to see what? To see God's command fully carried out. Caleb is a godly man. He wants this military operation to go off without a hitch and for it to be done to the full extent of God's command. He's a godly man and he's looking out for his daughter as well. And Othniel's obedience, of course, wins him this wife. And her later, uh, and the later verses tell us that she was a very astute and godly lady herself. Her father's given her some land, and she goes to him to ask if he can provide her with some springs as well. She doesn't want her and her husband having to farm land where there's no water. So she's an astute lady. She's looking after the economics of the household and the family, if you like, and goes to her father to ask for a land that will, for some springs that will allow her to irrigate and water her land. But her language is interesting when she does this. Verse 15, she said to him, give me a blessing. It's really delightful. There's so many moments in the Bible where there's a sort of delightful humanity comes out. And this is a daughter going to her father and not demanding, give me, some, give me some wells. She goes to him and she asks her father to bless her. And that is a beautiful, a beautiful thing, a beautiful part of the story. Her real concern, if you like, is not so much for material gain at this point, but for the spiritual gain that will come from being a properly functioning Israelite in God's promised land. That is her priority. What are we, as I I draw to a close now, what are we to make of this? Having done so much bad news in the book of Judges, there are a couple of observations I would make about this. First of all, clearly this is a beautiful benchmark for the treatment of women. That is not to say that fathers today 
in the society in which we live in should offer their daughters to a son-in-law who's going to deliver something good for them. That's not how it works today. But you need to set this story in the context of the later story of the murder of the Levite's concubine. If you set it in the context of that story, you understand why the writer inserted it here. Because there are ways to treat women and there are inappropriate ways to treat women. It is the Levite's concubine who's treated like an object. This is a daughter whose father respects her. He's acting to make sure that she gets the best husband possible. A godly man who carries out the word of God. This is a benchmark for fathers in their aspirations for their daughters and a benchmark for what happens later to bring out the full horror of the decline of the people of Israel. And secondly, note this. What do we get here? It's one of those passages in the Bible where the full obedience of a leader of Israel leads to a marriage and a blessing. There are those who say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he's really pretty inconsistent with the God of the New Testament. And when you talk to people about that, the book of Judges is probably one of the places those people are going to go to and say, look at the blood and guts and the slaughter in the book of Judges. What does the God in the book of Judges have in common with the God of the New Testament? Well, we've already pointed to one place, the holiness of God. God is a consuming fire in the New Testament, same as he is in the book of Judges. But there's a second, there's a second similarity between the book of Judges, God, and the New Testament, God, and it's this. The obedience of the leader of Israel leads to a marriage and a blessing. How is the Lord Jesus Christ described in the New Testament? He's the shepherd. We tend to think of shepherds as they're guys with crooks who lead flocks around. Well, shepherd in Scripture has a much more profound and rich meaning. Look at Ezekiel 34 when you go home this afternoon. Shepherd is the way that the king or the judge or the leader of Israel was described. And the good shepherd in Ezekiel 34 is described as the one who seeks the lost, lays down his life for the weak, who obeys the word of God. Here's Othniel, a good shepherd, being a good shepherd, and finding at the end of that marriage and a blessing. That points, I think, clearly towards exactly the same principle and role that the Lord Jesus Christ plays in the New Testament. What does Jesus Christ do? He is fully obedient to the Word of God in a way that Othniel could not even have conceived of. Othniel was a great military leader and a godly man, but he was still a sinner. The Lord Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh. He was perfectly obedient, even to the point of death. And what happened as a result of his death? A marriage and a blessing. What did the Lord Jesus Christ do in his death? He purchased for himself a people. The bridegroom purchased the bride. And the great marriage feast at the end of time will be what? It will be the great consummation of the marriage between the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and the bride whom he purchased by his obedience. That's the same principle that we see working out in Othniel in Judges chapter 1. And if you read the whole of the Bible as Christian scripture as you should, if you read, if you like, your Bible backwards, which is the best way to read it as a Christian, 
you will see here a clear foretaste, a clear sign of the greater bridegroom who is to come and the glorious bride that will be given to him at the end of time. Brothers and sisters, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, then your sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. Your sins have been dealt with by his perfect obedience, by his refusal to broker a compromise with the powers of evil, but by his absolute destruction and routing of the powers of evil and his inauguration of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, then you will be there at that great uh, banquet, wedding banquet at the end of time. And like AXA, you will receive a blessing. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for you this morning. Let us ask the Lord to apply his word to our hearts. O Lord God, you are a great and a merciful God. You are gracious beyond our comprehension. There are many things in your scriptures that are difficult for us to understand. Your holiness, your awesome and terrible commands to the Israelites as they entered the land of Canaan so many years ago. And yet, O Lord, we know that you are a good and a loving God. And we know, Lord, that you have indeed rewarded the great and perfect bridegroom with a bride. We ask, O Lord, that you would cause your faith to grow in our hearts this morning. You would keep us united to Christ and you would keep us safe until that final day of the great wedding feast. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.